0: Thank you so much for joining us this week at Zion City Church with teachings from Pastor Andrew Rydell. We believe that God still speaks through his word and his people. So right now, lean in and listen to the Holy Spirit. We hope that this message encourages you, inspires you, and brings you into a deeper love and worship of Jesus. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of Zion City Church. Corinthians 6, verse 12 through 20. So I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything, you say. Food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said, two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is, in, is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you've received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is the word of God.
1: The stories we believe shape the futures we live into. As human beings, we are narrative creatures, which means that all of us use stories to make sense of the world that we live in. You, think, you see, we like, as human beings, to think that we're purely logical beings moving through the world using only reason and truth. But that is not the lived experience. The way that we view the world and how we live into that is directly shaped by the stories that we believe are true. In Spike Jones's film Her, a movie about a man who falls in love with an operating system, there was this line from the movie that really stuck with me, and it's this The past is just a story we tell ourselves. And I think to some extent that's true to the human experience. What we think about our past is not merely shaped by facts or videotape footage of the things that took place, but it's rather our interpretation and experience of those events that tell us about the past. Right? If you were to ask every single person who was in this room last week what happened, There may be some common threads, like Jake's did worship and I taught, but largely you would hear how each person experienced and interpreted what happened differently. Every person's perspective was shaped by their experience and their interpretation of their experience in this gathered space. And so, if the stories we believe do in fact shape the futures we live into, then how is the story we believed about our sexuality shaped how we've lived into it? There is a story that is permeating every single person here in the room down to the fiber of your beings. And this story is the way that each of us view ourselves and our sexuality. It is, if you will, the water that each of us swim in. Now, we discussed in large part a portion of this cultural story and how it pertains to our bodies last week. How Gnosticism has formed and shaped what many of us think about what it means to be human. Now, if you missed last week, I really want to encourage you to go back and listen not because we want extra plays on our podcast, but because this is going to be basically one massive lecture that I've broken up into eight sections, and every single week is going to be basically building off of the one in front of it. And so you're going to need the ones previously to know where we're standing today. Now, if you missed last week, don't worry, you don't got to leave or something like that, but just make sure you go and catch up on the podcast. But It's this dualistic view that our bodies are meaningless organic material and it is our mind or our consciousness that is of value. This is the secular narrative around our bodies. And we talked about how this view has permeated not just culture, but the church. And so this morning, I want to further examine this view, but specifically as it pertains to our sexuality and our bodies. And I also want to biopsy the common Christian understanding of sexuality And lastly, I want to lay before us sexuality in the way of Jesus. Now, I'm not going to lie to you guys. Today might be a long one. So buckle up, get a cup of coffee, do what you got to do, stretch, do whatever you must do. Let's go for it. So I would argue that the experience for most followers of Jesus is they feel themselves trapped between two stories. The stories that they feel sometimes in their own body, the stories that they hear in the culture, and the story that they've come to learn from the Christian teaching, from the Christian sexual ethic, right? I want you to think about uh, a young couple who is getting together, right? In their bodies, they feel attraction and desire and love, and they are surrounded by a culture that says for them to engage in activity and show that love, etc. But they also find themselves in a Christian community where they're learning and, and they're being instructed on how they're to use their bodies in a way that honors God, and they feel themselves trapped between both stories, unsure of which one to live into. And so first... I want to talk to us about the secular story. The secular story goes something like this. We're animals. Human beings or animals with time and chance on our side, and we are nothing but happy or not-so-happy accidents depending on the amount of privilege you've been born into in the world, where you've been born, how much money your family had, et cetera. We have no real meaning or purpose other than evolutionary progress and the advancement of our species. Since we have no meaning or purpose, our bodies are simply organic machines that are given to us or that that we find ourselves in to accomplish our own will. Our biological sex, being male or female, has no meaning. It is simply just plumbing right it's just the way that we find ourselves in the world according to the secular narrative gender is imaginary it is a social construct it's a social construct to perpetuate oppression particularly on women and other minorities the act of sex is simply just play for adults it's merely an act of pleasure anything that is placed on an individual's expression of their sexuality is either oppressive or repressive, right? Any sort of religious or moral convictions are placed on an sexuality. That's seen as oppressive. Any kind of restrictions or restraints an in individual places on their own sexuality is seen as repressive. And the end goal of all of this human existence is simply just to be happy. Or to quote a phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This is the story that each of us are being sold in every corner of society. It's what you hear in podcasts. It's what you're hearing on college campuses. It's what you're seeing in Netflix series and Disney and Apple and Google and Twitter. All of this is the story we are constantly being inundated with. And let's be honest. This is a story that it's easy to assume is true because we hear it all the time. And the story often feels impossible to resist. But hear me in this, brothers and sisters. It is a story. It is an interpretation of the human experience. It is easy for us to believe it is reality because it's what we often hear, but that does not mean it's necessarily the case. And I have one question for us this morning. How is this story working out? I mean, do we have any more sense of joy, peace, hope, beauty, wonder, or love in the world because of this narrative that we believed? I would argue that this story is failing and failing rather quickly. Researcher Donna Fritas conducted hundreds of interviews of college students to ask them what it's like to date in the modern world now. Here are some of their responses. One said, hookups are scripted. You're, you learn to turn everything off except your body and make yourself, hear this, emotionally and vulnerable. Another student said this, I feel hurt and lonely. I wish I knew how to do more, how to create genuine relationship where I am known and appreciated as a person. Another student speaking about this who has a frequent sexual relationship with somebody says this about her partner. We don't really like each other in person, sober, We literally cannot sit down and have a cup of coffee. Now, I know what you're thinking. Those are just college students, right? It's like if college students are the marker of healthy dating and sexuality, right, we're in for trouble. But I believe that the college scene is kind of the canary in the coal mine. It's kind of pointing out and revealing that what's happening. But if you're thinking that's just that study, whatever. I did my own personal research and investigation, and I asked somebody who uh, doesn't identify as a follower of Jesus just to tell me, What has been your dating experience like? No caveats, no like leading questions. Just tell me what your dating experience has been like. This is what she said. No, she's not a college student. She's well off into her career, approaching her early 30s. She says this, it's honestly the worst. I am at the point now where marriage is probably never going to happen for me. I think it is because everyone wants their cake and to eat it too. I can't think of a time where I enjoyed a date I was on. All people want is sex, and if it's not on the table, they're gone. These comments are just the tip of the iceberg on what this vision of sexuality is actually bringing forth. Jonathan Grant says this, our cultural experiment has left a trail of relational wreckage and has left us in a state of denial about where we stand. This is the secular story and its fruit. Now, by way of contrast, I want to talk about the common Christian understanding of sexuality. Primarily, when I think people think about the Christian story and how it operates in terms of our sexuality, it primarily operates within the realm of morality, right? When people think about a Christian vision of sexuality, it's about the do's and don'ts. You can do these. You can't do that, right? It is this hardline rules around our sexuality. And honestly, from a secular pers- progr- perspective, they view Christian sexuality as oppressive and repressive and archaic and old, right? This story of sexuality, but the story of sexuality rather is, is more than a conversation about morality. It's a conversation about what it means to truly be human. And so here is a general framework that people have about Christian sexuality. It's this, sex is bad, God is a killjoy, and the Christian vision for sexuality is at the very least outdated, if not dangerous and bigoted. It fails to have any sort of developed understanding of human sexuality and the complexity of human sexuality. And frankly, it's hypocritical. The most, the the strongest proponents rather for abstinence are the same ones who are cheating on their wives and engaging in sexual misconduct and abuse. This is what an outside perspective is looking in on the Christian story. And to be honest, let's be honest, that's a fair critique because this is the message that we've proclaimed. And this is the message that we've embodied. And this is what people think it means to be a follower of Jesus. And this might even be your understanding. Like, I'm on board with Jesus, but dude, his teachings on sexuality and what we've learned in the church, I'm not really down for. This might be your lived experience. Now, you see, this is actually not the story of Christian sexuality. It's a caricature. It's what I think the church has modeled throughout history and modeled poorly, but it's not the actual story. So in the time that we have and a little bit remaining i want to lay forth what i believe is the is the biblical vision of christian sexuality hear me in this long before sexuality is ever about moral about morality it's about anthropology and long before it's ever about anthropology it's about theology here's what i mean simply Before it's about right and wrong and wrestling through Greek passages and what Paul means by this and that or whatever in certain texts, it is about what it means to be human. And this story begins with God. In the opening pages of Genesis, we see that he is the creator of all things. He speaks all things into existence. And if there is a creator and or designer, that implies what? A design. And every single person has a design, or in the Greek it's the word telos, meaning purpose. And every single person was made for life with God, including, including their sexuality. Every person was made to be the image of God in the world. Each person is not just organic material with no meaning, but every single person has dignity and value and worth because they are made in the imago Day image of God. God has chosen to make humans male and female. These realities are not trivial, peripheral. They are central to our sexuality and what it means to be human. Both maleness and femaleness represent what it means to be God's image in the world. And so, brothers and sisters, it is good and blessed to be male and female. Men and women are equal in essence, but not in design. Although... There are unhelpful and harmful stereotypes about what masculinity and femininity are. It does not mean that gender doesn't exist and that it's not woven into design. Gender is a huge part of what it means to be human. In the Christian worldview, sex is meaningful and powerful. It is not simply just play for adults, but it's an intertwining of two whole persons. Our sexuality is a powerful force in us. But hear me in this, it's not the most powerful or most important aspect of our personhood. As followers of Jesus, we find ourselves surrounded by these stories, wrestling through these questions. And it's safe to say we are not the first people to do this. And so, this brings us to our teaching text. Paul is a church planner in the early church. And he found himself having to teach and walk with the community through these very same questions around our sexuality. Keep in mind, we're jumping in the middle of a book. And always remember when you're reading scripture, particularly the New Testament epistles, you're reading somebody else's mail. And so Paul, here in our text, is writing to a church in Corinth. When you think of Corinth, I want you to think of, like, Las Vegas. Both of these cities share a similar ethos, right? Both are kind of known. Corinth is kind of the sin city of the ancient world. Corinth became known as a hub for prostitutions. You see sailors, it was a a common docking place, and sailors would come in and engage in those acts. And now, to be clear, prostitution in this time and in this space was not only normal, but celebrated as a life of, uh, as as life in Corinth. And Corinth had a reputation that kind of preceded itself in that if there was a woman who let's say had a particular reputation, she was known as a Corinthian. That was slang for referring to who she is and how she operated in the world. And this is the climate in which Paul is writing to. One of the things I always think is funny is I hear Christians say all the time, this is as bad as it's ever been. And it's like, that is such a narrow view of history, okay? Like, that is an absolute narrow view of history, you know? You have, like, college professors preaching whatever. It's like, dude, people in the church were actively visiting prostitution rings. It is not as bad as it's ever been, okay? And this is the world to which Paul writes. This is the world to which Paul is trying to pastor and lead his people through. And so what he does is he takes the narratives that the people are believing and he contrasts them with the way of Jesus, He begins in our text, verse 12, saying this, I have the right to do anything. Now, some of your translations don't have this in quotations because quotations weren't a part of the ancient way of writing. But if you were in Corinth and you read this letter, this would be something that was kind of common knowledge. And the same way I say what happens in Vegas, you think what? Shame on you guys. No, I'm just kidding. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? That's a common rhetoric. That's a common motto. It's a common phrase. And so this was a common phrase in Corinth that they would say, I have the right to do anything. That was kind of like the, the the motto of Corinth, if you will. On the sign, that's what it'd say, as you, welcome to Corinth. I have the right to do anything, right? And so as Paul is writing to this community, he's using a common phrase that's even used even among the followers of Jesus. And he begins to provide a rebuttal. For it. He says, I have the right to do anything. You say, Paul responds, but not everything is beneficial. Quotes them again, I have the right to do anything, Paul responds, but I will not be mastered by anything. Paul begins this section with a common quote, right? I have the right to do anything. And I want you to notice the language here I have the right to do anything. This framework and the the Corinthians framework around sexuality was about liberation, it was about rights and it was about freedom. Does this story sound at all familiar to you? I wanna call your mind to something that took place, this tectonic shift that happened in our own culture about half a century ago, known as the sexual revolution or the sexual liberation movement. Now, this revolution or movement didn't come out of nowhere, but it's instead the natural outflow of an ontology that our bodies mean nothing. If we hold to a dualistic worldview, who cares what I do with my body, the sexual revolution is a natural outflow of that. It's not, didn't It didn't happen by circumstance and chance that just hippies were getting high in California and it just kind of unfolded that way. It is a natural progression of that framework of thinking is how we came to the sexual revolution. Uh, Mary Eberstadt says this, the sexual revolution was the destigmatization and demystification of non-marital sex and the reduction of sexual relations in general to a kind of hygienic recreation in which anything goes so long as involved two, involved, those involved are consenting adults. Brothers and sisters, hear me in this. The sexual revolution has fundamentally changed the world in which we live. If the goal of a revolution is to overthrow those people in power who were in power before, the sexual revolution was successful. They have successfully overthrown the common narrative around our sexuality. And in this overthrow, we've experienced some massive shifts, massive shifts that we've never seen before in human history. Like first, that sex is disconnected from family and childbearing. Birth control as we know it today did not come into existence until the 1960s and wasn't available for anybody outside of marriage until 1972. There are people who are in this room right now who were alive and lived and were even adults when birth control as we know it did not exist for everybody and anybody. Think about that for a moment. And this has had massive implications for our sexuality. For nearly all of human existence, there is no having sex without the high possibility that you will be bringing new life into the world and this has all sorts of implications for our sexuality but particularly it has changed sex from being about family and childbearing to be merely about pleasure right the the common focus for sex before the pill was that of family and childbearing and has been shifted towards merely pleasure the sex, ma- the second massive shift, is that sex has been disconnected from marriage, right? Sex is no longer about two people in relationship until death do them part, but it's 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 it's, it's in- it, like it has been for almost all of human history. But it has now created an anxiety around our sexuality because we have soul ties with people without the safety of commitment. The third shift is that sex has been disconnected from love or emotional attachment. And this, I think, is probably one of the most profound shifts. Think of things like Tinder, hookup culture, pornography, where sex is merely about pleasure. And when sex is merely about pleasure, hearing this, people become objects of our desire rather than people to be loved. And this is the water we swim in. Melinda Selmi says this. Beneath all the peasantry of free sex and self-love, there is a fundamental belief that our body doesn't mean anything, that it is insignificant in a literal sense, signifying nothing. You can do anything you like with it. You can pleasure it with a vacuum cleaner, or you can give it away to anyone for any reason. It's sort of a wet machine, a tool that you can use in exchange for whatever purpose suits your fancy. Your body is not you, it is just a shell, a juicy robot. Yes, I just said that in church. And the real you, the disembodied ghost, controls. This is the modern framework. And if we are to be honest about the effects of the sexual revolution, it it has not delivered on the fruit that it has promised. In fact, many would say the sexual revolution has done the exact opposite of what it's promised to do. Again, Mary Ebersat says this, first and contrary to conventional depiction, the sexual revolution has proved a disaster for many men and women. And second, its weight has fallen heaviest on the smallest and weakest shoulders in society, even as it has given extra strength to those already strongest and most predatory. I think it's safe to say the sexual liberation movement has put far more people in bondage and brokenness than anyone actually being set free. If our vision of freedom is merely just doing whatever we want, then sure, it has been successful. But this is not the vision of freedom that Jesus nor the biblical authors hold. And I would argue that that vision of freedom is actually a form of slavery. There is a similarity between the culture of Corinth, view of sexuality, and the view of, co- the view of sexuality, each of us are being exposed to every single day. And what undermines this view of sexuality is what researcher Jonathan Grant calls expressive individualism. And essentially what that means is it is a combination of romanticism and authenticity. And I believe Paul addresses both. First, let's talk about romanticism. This vision of sexuality, this romanticism view of sexuality, has a primary focus on feeling, sensuality, and intuition. And it is the most important part of human identity. In other words, if I feel it, then it's true. And not just true, but good. And how I feel determines how I live in the world. Or to put it super simply, you do you. Right, that is, the, that is the motif of a generation. You do you, bro, right? It's how I feel. It's how I live in the world. Don't tell me how to live my life. You do you and I'll do me, right? Now, another way to phrase this is what the Corinthians say, I have the right to do anything. In so many words, they're saying, as long as I want or desire something, then I have the right to do that very same thing. And Paul provides pushback to this way of thinking with a simple question, is it beneficial? Another way to phrase that is a more simple question, is it good? I think that this is the kind of question we should be asking. Not does it feel good, but is it actually good for me, the community I find myself in, and the world in which I live? This kind of framework of, if I feel it, I do it, it's all about me, creates a sort of radical selfishness that treats others as merely objects to manipulate to achieve my inner sense of self-satisfaction. Right? The caveat to the motto of do whatever you want is always accompanied by what? As long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Now, the hard thing about the caveat to this, what does it actually mean to hurt another person? I mean, to be fair and charitable to this way of thinking, I think everybody would draw the line at like any sort of physical attack that would actually physically harm another person. I think everybody would draw that line there. Or, or in the areas where there's not consent, they would clearly li- draw the line, line there. But is that where the line should really go? Is that the only way in which we, are, we can hurt somebody or harm somebody? No one exactly agrees on what it means to hurt another person. It's all subjective to the individual. There are all sorts of things that someone can do that would be deemed legal. But is it good is the question. Does it lead to human flourishing? This mentality creates an instability in our sexuality. Because if our sexuality, its ties are only as strong as our romantic feelings and sexual experiences, That at any moment when our mood changes, in order to be quote unquote true to ourselves, it means we pursue that feeling wherever it may lead, even if it's at expense of another person. How many lives have been wrecked by this? Like I'm just not feeling it anymore. I just don't I, I think that we've fallen out of love. Right? How many divorces, affairs, breakups, heartbreaks have been, have been wrought by this way of thinking? And we justify it because it's the way that I feel inside. Now, Paul's question is obviously rhetorical in nature, but this way of being is obviously not good. It does not lead to human flourishing. The next has a half of this expressive individualism is that as authenticity. Right? Consider Paul's phrase again. I have the right to do, quote, anything I want. Much of the modern understanding of freedom is this. I can do whatever I want. And this is for sure the American vision of freedom. It's that let me do whatever I want to do. Get your hands away from me, right? This is American freedom, baby. Barbecues and big guns and big trucks, baby. America, right? This is the vision of freedom. And this is what we are being inundated with every single day. Now, the idea being that no external force can kind of provide any sort of commentary on what we do with our bodies, in particular with our sexualities. And we must be true to ourselves at all cost. So no God, no church, no Bible. Don't tell me what to do with my sexuality. And under this illusion, we think we are free. But according to Jesus and the authors of the New Testament, we've actually entered into a different form of bondage. So this phrase, Paul simply asks one question. Are you really free? And it's quote by saying, but I will be mastered by nothing. He says, you're doing whatever it is you want, but are you actually free? You see, the biblical vision of freedom is not freedom to do whatever you want, but hear this, freedom to do what is good. This is the biblical vision of freedom. It's not about autonomy from authority. It's about liberation from our destructive selves. You see, the idea of freedom as doing whatever we want actually enslaves us to our desires. You see, decisions become habits, and habits become the sum total of our lives. You see, we start doing something because it feels good, and then it becomes something you do without even thinking about it. It literally becomes second nature, and then it becomes something you have to do because it's the only way that you feel good, and then before you know it, you can't imagine a future without this thing in your life. You think you are free, but you are enslaved to your desires. Hence Jesus' line, whoever sins is a slave to sin. It's actually bondage. Paul critiques another phrase in the Corinthian culture, verse 13. He says this, you say, food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. So Paul takes this other phrase in Corinthian culture, food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. This was a common motif in, in Corinth. Now, it wasn't particularly just about food, but this was like the underlying argument for even their view about sexuality. It is just simply a desire that needs to be met. Who cares, our bodies don't matter anyway. This same Gnostic view of the body was present in Corinth. The idea that the body doesn't mean anything, and it's ultimately gonna be destroyed, so who cares anyways. The Corinthians reduced their sexuality to simply a desire to be filled, an itch to be scratched. But is this all our sexuality is? Paul confronts this idea head on by saying that our bodies were not designed for sexual immorality but for the Lord. So according to Paul, our sexuality has a purpose, a design. In the Greek, a telos. Ronald Rollheiser says this, sexuality is a beautiful Good, extremely powerful, sacred energy given to us by God and experienced in every cell of our being as an irrepressible urge to overcome our incompleteness. To move forward in unity and consummation with which is beyond us. To put it super simply, our sexuality is a God-given force that is meant to lead us in love towards others. Now, I want to be clear, our sexuality is not limited just to who we're having sex with or if we're having sex. Your sexuality is so much more than that. It is a powerful force that leads us to be loved and known by others. Sexuality at its core is what draws us into community and leads us towards others. The fundamental desire beneath our sexuality is that of intimacy, being known and knowing others. Think about the line in Genesis, right? God creates Adam, and then what does he say after com- creating Adam without Eve? He says, "It is not good that what man should be alone." God's vision for the human sexuality cannot be fulfilled with an individual in isolation. Now, this obviously has connotations of marriage to it, but it's not limited to marriage because if that were the case, then Jesus never fully lived into his sexuality because he was never married, right? And much of the early church leaders were never married. They lived a life of singleness. And so it's absolutely possible for you to live fully integrated in your sexuality and never engage in the act of sex because your sexuality is so much more than that. Jonathan Grant says this, actually, the greater part of our sexuality is affective or social sexuality. Affective sexuality describes our fundamental need for relational rather than strictly sexual Intimacy across broad range of nurturing relationships. And so, in summation, the telos, the purpose for your sexuality, is actually to drive you towards community. And in some expressions, lead towards marriage and, r- and relational intimacy in the bedroom, but that's not what it's limited to. It's pushed towards intimacy with others. Now, Paul uses the word sexual immorality. Which, if we're honest, it's just not a good, like not a clean word. Like, it sounds very judgy. And it's, you know, you can't just use that in regular lingo <laughs> in the everyday world. Sexual immorality has like a, a, a preacher voice, in it. sexual immorality, right? And so it sounds like a big, scary word. The word in Greek is just the word porneia. Can you say porneia? Oh, three of you can. The rest of you are scared to. It's okay. It's a Greek word. It's in the Bible. You can use it in church. It's porneia. It's where we get the word, where we get the language of pornography from. Now, this is one of the biblical author's favorite words because it's a junk drawer word. You have a junk drawer in your house, right? What goes in that junk drawer? Literally anything. Batteries, pens, ID cards, bubble gum, whatever it is. Some of you might be some more questionable things in there. But that's basically whatever doesn't have a place finds its place in the junk drawer. And yours is probably at a point where you can't really get it open anymore. I have to drop the people elbow on mine and slam it, you know, just so we can get everything in there. But that's our junk drawer. This is basically a junk drawer word for the biblical authors. Essentially what pornea means is anything and everything outside of God's vision for human sexuality. And God's vision for human sexuality is one man, one woman together in the covenant of marriage. If it fits outside of those parameters, goes in the junk drawer of pornea. right? So this is why the biblical authors love to use this word. Because I guess this is like all of that, you fill in the blank, goes in that drawer. This is what we're mean. And Paul says our bodies... We're not telosed or designed or had the purpose of engaging engaging in pornea. Instead, he says that our bodies were designed for the Lord. Tish Harrison Warren, uh, in her book Liturgy of the Ordinary, which I highly recommend, says this: Our bodies are instruments of worship. The scandal of misusing our bodies through, for instance, sexual sin, it's not that God doesn't want us to enjoy our bodies or sexuality. And said it is that our bodies, sacred objects intended for worship for the living God, can become a place of sacrilege. When we use our bodies to rebel against God or to worship the false gods of sex, youth, or personal autonomy, we're not simply breaking an archaic or arbitrary commandment. We're using a sacred object. In fact, the most sacred object on earth in a way that denigrates its beautiful and high purpose. Sexual sin is a scandal in the scriptures. Not because the apostles were brushing prigs. They were in reality a rather salty bunch. Or because the body is dirty or evil, but because our skin and muscles and feet and hands are more sacred than any communion chalice or baptismal font. In other words, when we engage in the act of pornea, anything outside of God's vision for human sexuality, we are spray spray painting the Sistine Chapel. That which was made for beauty and honor and wonder and worship becomes a commonplace, becomes a place of of dirtiness and and degradation. So our telos, as it pertains to our body and sexuality, are tied deeply with our relationship with God. They're not disconnected. And so when we use our bodies and sexuality not as they were designed, we are spray painting the Sistine Chapel. So... What do we do then with our desire? Each of us in our bodies has sexual desire that reveals itself. And so here's what I want to say. Your sexuality, and in particular your sex drive, hear me in this, is given to you by God. A lot of the church record around this is like, don't, stop, no, bad, whatever. And, and, and fear is a terrible teacher and motivator, right, because it only lasts so long. Your fear only lasts so long. And so many of you probably grew up in a church environment where you had, like, the youth group talk. You know what I'm talking about? It's, like, real serious, life's dim, loud, low. It's, like, we're talking about purity tonight, you know, or whatever it is. And they have you do something where you, like, crumble up a piece of paper or rip it all apart and try to glue it together. And be like, That's you if you do this. And so it's, like, they drive fear into you. And that works. You need 12 and 13 or whatever. By the time you're 17 and you're in high school and you're doing whatever, and that imagery in your mind of the rolled up piece of paper, that's long gone. Right? And then we are wondering why, why followers of Jesus are engaging in the same exact acts as secular people with no differentiation in statistics. It's because we're telling a bad story. If that's your whole theology of sexuality, that's out the door when you're 17. We need a stronger, more integrated view of our sexuality that teaches us what sex is actually for. And so I want to say that desire you have in you is good. It's not bad. It's not wrong. It's given to you by God. He's created you with that. And here's the other thing. God created sex. Newsflash, right? Like, he thought it up. God is a God of pleasure. He likes to give his people good things. This is why food tastes good, why sunsets are beautiful, and why sex is a gift for people to enjoy. God's not a prude in heaven, like, look at them down there having fun. He thought the idea up right? We could have procreated like some animals do, like asexually or something like that, or the touching of fingers to one another. It could have been anything, but God designed it as sex to be enjoyed as an act of intimacy. So God's not some prude in heaven looking down, shaking his head, how dare they? In the Song of Solomon, when a man, when, when when the husband and the wife consummate the marriage, it says in the scriptures that God is singing over them, drink your fill of love. God is pleased when his people engage in the pleasure he's designed for them. But the fact that he's designed means it has a purpose. It has a context. It has a way in which it needs to be used. And God has structured sex that it would be used within the context of marriage. That is how he has designed it. And so our desires are not to be oppressed or repressed or dismissed, but they're to be properly channeled, right? It is not desire that's the problem. It's what we do with the desires that are in us that changes things. One of the ways the biblical authors talk about our bent desires is this language of the flesh. And I know a lot of you had this in mind last week when I was talking about the body. When I was talking about the body is good and God created it, immediately in your mind came all the passages of Paul talking about the flesh. And a lot of your understanding is that, like, this body is like this broken vessel that's, like, the cause of all your struggle in life. You're like, this dang body, when I get out of this body, finally, I'll be the thing. But that's never what the biblical authors use. The idea of sarks can mean body, but anytime it's used for body, it's always used in a positive light. The rest of the times that Sarkis is used, Paul is not talking about the physical body. He's talking about the bent nature within us, this idea of the flesh. So it's not your physical body that has, you know, that's the source of sin in your life. It's the nature, there's a nature, there's an aspect of yourself that Paul uses the language of flesh to describe that is uh, bending your desires, right? And so... Paul never once, and you'll never find this, anyone in the scriptures or any of the New Testament authors ever claim that the physical body is bad. But they do talk about the desires within us that are bent away from God. Our base, primal, animalistic desires for self-gratification. This part of ourselves is sarks. And is this part of ourselves that Paul says needs to be crucified? And is this part of ourselves that we need to disciple ourselves away from and instead walk away? by the Spirit, right? And each of us are aware that all desires aren't good, right? Would you all agree with that statement that all desires are good? Some desires are good. Some desires come into your mind. And if they were to be projected out on the world, even since you've been here this morning, right, you would be deeply ashamed of. And you realize there are things that exist within you that aren't always good. So if the secular narrative is follow whatever your heart tells you, What has your heart been telling you lately? Cut off that dude in the line at Starbucks, right? Uh, Whatever the case may be. Still the last donut at the workplace. Whatever it is, whatever these bent desires are, you fill in the blank. You got plenty of them in your mind right now. Those things aren't good and don't lead to the good life and don't lead to us looking more like Jesus. And so if we listen to that advice, it is the worst advice on the planet, and it will lead us to derailing all our relationships and living a life of brokenness and destruction. So you do you is bad teaching for any sort of human living. Now, Paul continues. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. So, we often think that the secular story gives too much importance to sex, but I would argue it gives far too little importance to sex. For the authors of the scriptures and Jesus, sex is about way more than sex. It is about two people becoming one. The Hebrew word, um, as it's laid out in Genesis, of, beco- of becoming one is the word ichad. Can you say ichad? Three of you again. The rest of you are scared. Don't worry. you go going to say it. And when it's paired with the word flesh, it literally means to be fused in the closest of ways. Akkad is the blurring of lines between a man and a woman. Echad is the closest possible level of intimacy. One of the most beautiful ways the scriptures describe uh, this act of sex, particularly in marriage, is the word yada. Can you say yada? There you go, getting braver. Okay, yada is is the word you use. It means to know by experience, right? So in Genesis, it says that Adam yada his wife Eve. Adam knew his wife Eve. Why? Because for the biblical author, sex isn't about sex. It's about intimacy. It's about integration. And so they're saying that Adam got to know his wife on the deepest levels of knowing. And science also confirms this psychophysical union. Scientists have discovered that when two people have sex, a chemical is released called uh, oxytocin. It is known as the attachment hormone. It's the same chemical release when a mother nurses her child. It builds this sort of attachment between the two. And so uh, uh, scholars and people who study brain science said that that when two people have sex, it is quote-unquote an involuntary chemical commitment. So your body is literally releasing hormones when you have sex with another person to attach you to them in your psyche. Science confirms that that this is true, what the scriptures say. A recent study of brain scans showed that a couple who was sexually active, when they broke up, the same part of their brain lit up when they broke up as the same part of your brain that lights up when you break a bone in your body. That kind of visceral pain is the same kind of pain that lit up in the neuroscience of their brain when they broke up with somebody. Tim Keller says this, sex... Is God's way for two people to reciprocally to say to reciprocate to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. And brothers and sisters, our bodies speak, and our bodies communicate commitment through the act of sex. Jonathan Grant says this: sex is therefore a complex language designed to communicate and connect. The mysteries expressed in the biblical vision that the two become one flesh, meaning sexual relations always involve us as whole persons, embodied souls and ensouled bodies. So this is what our bodies say when we have sex, right? But clearly, it's not always what somebody means. It is possible for us to lie with our bodies. What do I mean? Have you ever held hands or kissed somebody that uh, you didn't really like all that much. Don't get all awkward now. Yeah, most of you probably have. Now there may be a few reasons why. Maybe it was like the middle school playground, they do it, kiss, or whatever it was, you were pressured, okay? Or maybe you wanted them to think that you were more invested in something than you actually were. You kind of wanted to manipulate the individual. And so what you did, you used your body to tell a lie. You said, oh yeah, I'm actually here, right? This is the whole, like, When we fake smile at one another, oh, hi, how's it going? Good to see you. Look at the kids. You walk away. I can't stand that lady, right? It's like we're lying with our bodies. We're saying one thing on the external but means something different within. Our bodies have the capacity to lie, and we lie when we sleep with people that we don't have that commitment with. Nancy Piercy says this, when we have sex outside of marriage, we are essentially lying with our bodies. Our actions are saying that we are united on all levels, when in reality, we are not We are contradicting ourselves. We are putting on an act. We are being dishonest. Biblical morality asks us uh, us to consist in what we say, to be consistent, rather, in what we say with our bodies and what we say with the rest of our lives, to tell the truth with our bodies. Now, briefly, I want to say this. This is why uh, sexual sin... And things done sexually hurt so much. There are those of you, and I'm pastorally I really want to speak into this now, who a part of your story has great pain involved with this, the sexual history you have because of the way somebody treated you. Now if sex was merely play for adults, then that kind of sexual abuse or sexual history would be easy to overcome but ask anybody who's been in a circumstance in a place like that. It is far from it because sex is well, way more than sex. And so there are those for who, and just pastoral, I want to say, we love you and Jesus is in the process of healing you and, and, and God wants to redeem your sexual story and there's hope and reconciliation and life for you ahead. But this is why it hurts so dang much. It's because it really, really matters. Now, Paul's exhortation to the church in Corinth isn't to, like, put your dukes up against sexual sin. His encouragement is to run. Everywhere else in the scriptures, they say resist sin, resist sin, fight against sin. When it comes to sexual sin, book it, right? All other sin, you could take square on, you know what I mean? You throw the left hook, you throw the right cross, you know, you got a chance. Sexual sin is 6'4", 285, and you, you're my stature, right? You run. That's the, that's the model for fighting is you book it. You leave. You ain't winning that fight, bro. You losing all day long. Know your limitations. Know your back gun. Go. Dip. That's what he says. He says flee from sexual immorality. Get the heck out of town. He's drawing on the image of Joseph in Genesis. You may know the story familiar with Potiphar's wife. So Potiphar's wife has like the hots for Joseph. She's been like, like trying to like get him in the bedroom all these months. Joseph kept refusing her. One day she traps him in the corner and like grabs him by his robe. Does Joseph say, no, we really shouldn't stop? No. He books it, and the scripture says that he leaves his garments behind him, meaning he ran out naked to get away from that woman, flee for his life. That imagery of run for your stinking life is what Paul is saying here. He's not saying, oh, just dabble, you know, but resist and stay strong. He's saying book it, leave, run, flee from sexual immorality. And so maybe this is the word for some of you today. Like you've been just like, oh, I've been trying so hard. It's just whatever. But you keep putting yourselves in places of temptation. Brothers and sisters, run. Book it. Leave. Don't fight. You don't have to be proud. You don't have to have an ego. Leave. Don't put yourself in situations to set yourself up for failure. This is what Paul says. He says flee sexual immorality. Now, the next thing he says is that sexual sin is a particular sin and that it is against our own bodies. Meaning... Paul says that when we sin sexually, we actually sin against ourselves. One of the best translations for this idea of sinning against yourself is the, idea to, is the idea of transforming or changing yourself by something that you do. And so the idea being that the way that we get to where we are is through exposing ourselves to something that is catastrophic to our beings. The idea being that someone who continually gives themselves over to something until they become like what they give themselves over to. Particularly when we think about people who are like sexual deviants or we think about something like perversion. Nobody is born that way, right? They become that way by continually to expose themselves to sexual depravity. And as time, months, years go on, Their whole psyche has changed to become like that which they have beheld. And this is what we're seeing through and through in all of the data. So this is why Paul is so deeply concerned with what's happening in the church in Corinth. Because sex is a particularly powerful and formative reality. And when we engage in sexual acts, we are integrating the deepest part of who we are with the deepest part of others. This is why Paul says, when you guys are going over to the temple and sleeping with a prostitute, it's not just you're scratching an itch. You are carrying in your body, you are a, the temple of the Lord, and you're carrying the presence of God and the deepest parts of who you are, and you're tying them to this person and the deepest parts of who they are. He says this is not fitting of a follower of Christ. And so sex is not just play for adults, but it is deeply formed ties that really matter. So, if our bodies are temples, then as Dave Loma says, the temples are in ruins. Think about how we've treated our bodies, how we think about our sexuality, how we live and move and be in the world. Paul continues by saying this, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. I started this sermon by saying the stories we believe shape the future we live into. Hear me in this, brothers and sisters, it's time for us to have a better story, particularly around our sexuality. Many of us have believed this secular story and it has brought ruin and destruction, hurt and pain and loss in our lives. And it's time for us to believe a better story. The story that the culture is telling us about our sexuality is not working. We need a new and better story. A story that reveals the purpose and design of our sexuality. A story that shows the beauty and wonder of our sexuality. A story that instructs the guardrails to keep our sexuality in its proper context. A story that teaches us that our sexuality is about worship of God. A story that teaches us that the act of sex is more than about sex. It is about two people becoming one. A story that teaches us about the formative power of sex and a story that is found woven in the pages of Scripture, taught from the mouth of Jesus, and embodied in the life of the church for millennia. Ronald Rollheiser again says this, Sexuality lies at the center of the spiritual life. A healthy sexuality is the single most powerful ve- vehicle, therefore, to lead us to selflessness and joy, just as unhealthy sexuality helps constellate selfishness and unhappiness and does nothing else. One of the fundamental tasks of sexuality, therefore, is to help us understand and channel our sexuality correctly. This is, however, no easy task. Sexuality is a powerful fire that is not easy to channel it in life-giving ways. The very power, the most powerful force on the planet, makes it a force not just for formidable love, life, and blessing, but also the worst hate, death, and destruction imaginable. Sex is responsible for most of the ecstasies that occurred on the planet, but it is also responsible for lots of murders and suicides. It is the most powerful of fires, the best of all fires, the most dangerous of all fires, and the fire which ultimately lies at the base of everything, including the spiritual life. So what is the story that your body tells? It is a story about honoring God with the body that you've been given by living in the design or telos that he's made you to live in. Now, what this sermon is not is uh, a sermon that's meant to bring shame or condemnation. I realize There are all sorts of backgrounds in the room, experiences in the room as it pertains to our sexuality. And a lot of people, when confronted with a message like this, can feel guilty, can feel ashamed, can feel like they've missed out on the things that God has for them. And I have good news for you this morning. The blood of Jesus covers you. Jesus frees you from shame. He frees you from guilt. And hear me in this. He frees you from the bondage you put yourself in. And then there's a variety of stories and backgrounds. Here's what I believe. The Spirit longs to bring healing this morning. There are those of you who feel sexually broken. And your longing is to be made whole again. And the really amazing thing about Jesus is he's in the business of making you whole and new. And maybe the story your body has been telling has been not one of honoring the Lord, but living in the secular story. Well, today Jesus gives you a fresh invitation to honor him with your body today, to set you free from your past, your sin and your shame, and to walk in newness of life. What comes to mind is the story in John 8. There is a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. She didn't commit adultery two weeks ago. It didn't happen five years ago in her past. She was literally caught in the act. And many Bible scholars believe that they grabbed her from the bed and they threw her before Jesus, these Pharisees, these religious leaders. And they confront Jesus and they say, Jesus... The law commands us to stone this woman. What do you have to say? In a room full of people, Jesus looks around for a moment, and then he stoops on the ground, and he begins to write something in the ground. And the biblical authors don't say what it was. But one by one, all of the very same people with stone in their hands, ready to kill this woman for her sin, begin to drop their stones one by one. With the sound of falling stones and through tearful eyes, this woman looks at Jesus. And Jesus has one question for her. He says this, Where are those who accuse you? And through her tear-stained cheeks, she looks across and sees nobody is there but her and Jesus. And She says, They've gone, Lord. And Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. In a world that is requiring judgment and condemnation, Jesus gives grace. And brothers and sisters, grace meets you today. We want to create a space where we can carry our pain to God, carry our sexual brokenness to God, bring our guilt or shame, our concerns, our worries, our aches, the deep wounds that have been incurred because of sex, and bring them to Jesus. And so we're going to have a team of people here who aren't here to judge you, who are here just to pray for you and love you and remind you of what Jesus already says about you and that you're forgiven and that you're free and that you're loved and that your past does not dictate your future, but you live in a better story now, a story of redemption. So would you stand with me?
0: To see all the new content coming from Zion City, follow us on Instagram or like us on Facebook. And to partner with us financially, visit our website at zioncitychurch.net.